Just a reminder that we have collected into one place all of our favorite ways that you can help support the show while doing any holiday shopping this year, including real books, audiobooks, various apparel and merch, not just our stuff, and, of course, gift memberships. Find that all at bestofleft.com slash holiday. We appreciate the support. Again, that's bestofleft.com slash holiday. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at some of the factors driving hyperpartisanship in the U.S. right now, along with multiple arguments to not give up on the power of persuasion. But first, just a quick reminder that we can now accept text messages. This is new, in addition to voicemails and emails. It's the same number we've always had, but you can now text us a message through standard SMS, find us on WhatsApp, and the Signal Messaging app. So save our number, and when the mood strikes, send us your questions and comments through the method of your choice. The number is 202-999-3991. And again, it's good for voicemails, texts, WhatsApp, and Signal messages. And now, onto the show. Clips today are from the NPR Politics Podcast, Ideas from the CBC, How to Be a Better Human, Front Burner, and The Truth of the Matter, with an additional members-only clip from The Future of Everything. And stay tuned to the end, where I'll explain why it struck me as important to clarify the impacts of hyperpartisanship right now. your book starts with a story you tell about the eagles and the rattlers. Uh, This was an experiment done in 1954 where a social psychologist took two very similar, by design, groups of fifth grade boys, split them up into two teams, and then observed them. So let's start by talking about what happened and why it's relevant to us talking about polarization in politics. Right. So The important thing is that when they started out, uh, they put these boys into two different camps and didn't tell them about the other camp, uh, even though it was just a little ways down the road. So they had a week to kind of get to know each other within their their own individual group. They named themselves the Rattlers and the Eagles, um, and they bonded as as a group. And then after the first week, the experimenters told the boys that there was another camp of boys just down the road. And the boys immediately wanted to start a competition against that other team of boys. They immediately started calling them pigs and bums and dirty shirts, which is apparently an insult back then. Uh, and they engaged in these competitions for, for a week. And by week three, uh, they were raiding each other's camps. They were throwing rocks at each other. They were getting into fistfights. It became so dangerous that the experimenters decided to separate them um, physically because they were worried about the safety of the boys. So just within three weeks, they had sort of started this war between these boys who really had very little differences between them. It's such a wildly simple experiment with such a wildly simple result. And I, I mean, we barely even have to explain, I guess, like how, how this applies to politics. We clearly have Democrat, Republican so heavily fighting each other these days. But one thing that I was curious about when I read that story was, okay, we do have these two teams right now that are angry at each other. And this story implies that it's just human nature. You see yourself in a group, you're angry at the out group, you want to fight them or something to, to that effect. But why is it that Democrat and Republican or liberal and conservative are inspired that right now? Because clearly not every group membership does. Like I, 
I live in DC. I'm a DC resident. I have no particular animosity to people in Maryland or people in Virginia. So why why does party do this to us? Yeah, so that's a really it's a really interesting question. And it and party doesn't always do it to us in exactly this it, the way that it's happening right now. Um uh, I think one in, interesting way to think about it is to imagine that um, all the rattlers were Catholic and all of the eagles were Protestant, or all of the rattlers were white and all of the eagles were black. Uh, you can imagine that those battles between them would have been much more intense than they even were, even though they're fighting over essentially a trophy that's exactly the same trophy, right? They're fighting over the exact same prize. Um, but if we added in this additional social element, then we would have a much stronger battle over the same exact thing. Right. And, and so that's how, that's how I'm thinking about parties is that gradually over the last 50 years, the parties have become much more socially distinct from each other. And that creates sort of maps onto our party divide, this racial, religious, cultural, geographic divide that makes every single battle more intense. So one of the big points of your book is about this change in how we are sorted and how we have increasingly lost what you call cross-cutting identities, and our parties have become very much internally alike. Tell me more about that. How did that happen, and how much has it changed? Right. So, you know, in this period after, let's say, the Civil Rights Act, when when people were kind of deciding which party to be in and moving around— we had a lot of people who were, you know, they might be Democrats or Republicans, but they might run into people who were in the other party in the grocery store or at church or in their bowling leagues or, you know, neighborhood clubs. And so it was a lot easier to humanize and understand people on the other, in the other party as, you know, basically well-intentioned human beings who had families and lives and, and maybe you disagreed about politics, but there's, they still sort of have the country's best interest at heart and you can get, you can get along with them. And gradually over time, as the parties became more sorted, what happened was that those connections to people in the other party started to disappear. And those are called cross-cutting identities. And so as we lose our, the number of cross-cutting identities between the parties, it becomes easier for Democrats and Republicans to think of each other as enemies rather than as just people they disagree with. Why is it, though, that that increased sorting has led to more partisan animosity? What is the, what is the link between white evangelicals being Republican, agnostics being Democratic? Uh, what's the link between that and people being angry at each other? Right. So... There is a, a psychological story to tell, which is the sort of social psychology of group identities. Um, and, and what social psychologists have found is that our, you know, our own self-esteem is linked to the status of the groups that we belong to. When our group is in competition for status with another group, we start paying attention and becoming more active. We become more emotionally responsive to winning and losing. Um, and we become more biased against the, the other group. Now, American partisan politics is arranged so that we have regular competitions for status. Those are elections, and they happen at least every two years. We often hear also legis legislation being framed as either a win or a loss for one of the two parties. And so if our party was not connected to these other identities and our party lost, we would feel sad. 
Uh, but we would still have the rest of all of these other identities keeping us feeling like we're, we're still okay as individuals. But if all of these other really important identities are linked to the status of our party, then all of a sudden when the party loses, it feels like all of those other groups also lose. And that is a devastating psychological feeling. Liliana, your book came out well before the 2020 election. So once you watched that election, how did you see your research manifest in it? And did it surprise you at all? I mean, no. <laughs> I, I I was actually really concerned about things getting very dangerous around the 2020 election um, because the Trump presidency, it, you know, really leaned into the divides between Democrats and Republicans. And the racial divide and the, and, you know, sort of the even religious divide in the U.S. And Trump's presidency in particular took something that had been sort of an implicit racial connection between party and, and racial conflict that, you know, that's what dog whistles were for, right? We, we were implicitly talking about race when we weren't, but we weren't explicitly talking about race. And Trump's presidency just took it all out into the open and made racial conflict a really explicit part of his partisanship. And America Mm -hmm. as a country really, you know, has never really dealt very well with our like legacy of racial violence and, and prejudice. And so when we map our racial divide onto our partisan divide, it actually creates a huge risk of violence partisan violence because we can we can effectively use the parties as proxies for our racial conflict which is still you know which is still can be seen as quite violent so i was actually concerned and i'm i'm working on a new book project right now looking at partisan violence in american politics and i've been working on this since since 2017 um and collecting data this whole time also where you know levels of approval of violence in the american electorate are are, you know, 20% of Americans are willing to say it's it's at least a little bit justified to engage in violence against people in the other party. Perhaps we're in a worse place than a lot of us realize. Do you think that's Yeah, fair? no, I mean, I think that we're at this point where the because our party our partisanship has really become so racialized and there's there's good research out there that that shows that when you make people think about party they they immediately also think about race and when you make them think about race they immediately huh. think about party so these two concepts are really strongly linked in people's minds and in fact even uh we're seeing what what uh, political scientist Michael Tesler calls a, a racial spillover effect where issue positions, policies that are not racialized have become racialized. So you can predict people's opinion on health care or gun control based on their level of racial resentment, which was not the case um, prior to the Obama administration, really. Wow. So if that's a new development, do we know what caused it? I mean, you just mentioned the Obama administration. Was it having a non-white president? Did that play into this? It was, yeah, it had. A, it did have an effect. And I think it I think it really, you know, what Tesla's work says is, you know, it clarified for people who especially were low information voters, people who really did not pay attention to politics or the news at all. For those people, simply seeing the face of the president taught them something about what it means to be a Democrat and allowed them to connect their partisanship to their to their own race in a way that they hadn't necessarily done before, right? Maybe they were a union family, or maybe their parents had been Democrats, and they just didn't really think about it. Um, mm-hmm. But that presidency clarified for basically everyone what the Democratic Party looked like. 
questions that our listeners often have, they had this in the Facebook group, they've asked us this at podcast shows before is, all right, how do we fix it? And I mean, let's start at the micro level, the person to person level. Is is it that what we all need more cross cutting identities, we need to just talk to more people that are different from us. And as one person doing that, does that make much of a difference? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first, the first way to think about it that, that I've been thinking about it is, um, maybe it's not a problem we need to solve. Um, okay. Right. It's, if we were to just hypothetically imagine that the United States has a reckoning with our legacy of racial violence and an entire political party, party that's supporting, you know, new policies that actually create a true multiracial democracy. If that ever were mm-hmm. to happen, what would we imagine would be the the next thing? I would imagine that we would see a huge backlash from the forces of white supremacy, right? We That's what would be inevitably the response. I can't imagine sure. any way we would have this reckoning without that response. And so that may be where we are right now, right? This might actually be the bumpy part of the road on the way to a full multiracial democracy that we're going to have to drive over in order to get there, right? There's no way to drive a smooth path from here to a fully representative multiracial democracy. It's just not going to be smooth. So the best case Mm -hmm. scenario is that we're in that rough part of the road right now. And the question is, you know, are the wheels going to stay on the car to get us to the smooth part later? We are still around the world, and certainly in the United States, perhaps the leading edge of this, unfortunately, uh, in a real crisis in which pro-democracy, pro-freedom forces are struggling to outcompete anti-democratic, deceptive, sometimes fascistic forces in a battle for hearts and minds. And so I felt very good after those results, but I still feel that there is a tremendous amount of work to do to build pro-democracy movements that can durably beat back the menace of of deception, uh, wannabe tyranny, xenophobia, and these other dark forces. So it's still a shade kind of under cautiously optimistic. Cautiously optimistic, and the work is long. This is a generational project. We, We are in a generational mess that democracy in so many different places with different histories, different issues, has gotten so close to obliteration, and it's going to be the work of a generation to put democracy back onto any kind of safe footing. Your book is about persuasion, and I was curious what, how much you think persuasion actually had a, or was a factor in the success of the Democrats this time around. Look, persuasion is always what is happening in politics, but the problem is, the problem with which my book begins is that many of us have given up on persuasion, in this moment of rising polarization around the world. We, we participate in what I call in the book, the great write-off, you know, uh, that person will never change because they voted that way once. That person will never change because they belong to this group and their interest in protecting the power and privileges of that group will mean they will never change. Now, I have participated, I hear, see nods in the audience. I have participated in the culture of the write-off as much as all of you nodders and the people who are not nodding because you're trying to pretend it's not you also. Um, <laughs> I think we've all participated in the culture of the write-off in this time. In some ways, it's the culture of the age of polarization. 
The problem with it is it's a empirically false. It is not true that people don't change. A whole lot of 2021's anti-vaxxers are now fully vaccinated. A whole bunch of people who hated gay folks in the 1990s now have no problem with them and vote for gay candidates and people who advance pro-gay policies. A bunch of people who have supported Donald Trump or other kind of authoritarian movements around the world have since changed their mind and voted against those movements. So persuasion is always going on. And when we turn our back on the idea of persuasion out of our despair, out of our fatalism, out of our depression at what's happening, we kind of leave the terrain open to the worst actors. Here's the problem. The worst actors always believe in persuasion, right? You know, I mean, there would be no Fox News if they didn't believe in persuasion. They think everyone's in play. Really, I mean this very seriously. Like, there's a reason they play these looping videos of people crossing the border and this. I mean, they believe that a new fearful person is born every second, right? They believe a new racist is born every second. They believe that they can constantly draw people in to their dystopian view of the world in which everyone alien and other is a threat. But you're not prescribing that we have another Fox News on the other side. No, I'm suggesting that if the most dangerous movements of our time believe in persuasion and conversion and the most righteous and inclusive movements of our time get this kind of French philosopher shrug about, ugh, they'll never change, we are sleepwalking our way into tyranny and into regimes of disinformation. And so I really, with this book, desperately want the pro-democracy side to reclaim persuasion. And I wrote the book because I didn't have the answers to how we do that. I spent a lot of time with people, organizers, activists, politicians, cognitive scientists, occult deprogrammer, because that's where we are uh, now, and others who I think hold certain insights about how we can reach people even when it seems so hard, how we can pull back those relatives, those voters, those coworkers who we seem to have lost to the far side. Looking from this end, and of course, we can't say that this doesn't happen here in Canada as well, but many Americans can't agree on some very basic facts. What evidence do you think was most compelling in persuading you that opinions can be changed? I think a lot of these persuaders that I'm writing about have a different mental model of people on the other side from them on issues than most of us have, certainly than I have, than a lot of people I see have. Their basic mental model is people are confused. People are, as Beyonce says on her new album, contradicted. People are conflicted. People are torn. Now, not everybody, right? I think most of these people I write about in the book would say, in most of our democracies, there's kind of a hardcore 20% on the left and a hardcore 20% on the right. What distinguishes those two 20s is not the strength of their opinions or the pungency of their opinions. It's how thought through their opinions are. You're not going to chat them out of their opinion on immigration at a bar in a night. That Those two 20%. They've watched the movies, they've read the books, they've done the homework. There's some roots under that. Now, you go do average voter interviews in the street, people are much more all over the place. I hate socialism and they better not take away my universal health care. Just like people are just like, it's kind of funny, but it's also like people are conflicted. People have differing moral commitments. People, you know, grew up in the Cold War and were told socialism's bad, but they have a knee injury and they like the Canadian healthcare system, right? They're just like 
people live real complicated lives and embody those complexities. That, that kind of 60% of people in the middle and the 60% of folks in the middle, these persuaders I write about, they are obsessed with how these 60% of people in the middle, they, they may say they're in a party, but they can be toggled into a pretty right-wing view of the world or a pretty left-wing view of the world on a given issue, depending on the atmosphere, depending on who the candidate is in front of them, depending on whether inflation is 2% or 20%, depending on whether things feel abundant in their town or scarce, depending on whether every time they close their eyes and open them, their town feels like unrecognizable from a demographic point of view or it feels pretty stable. All these things that just affect people's very visceral sense of, am I okay? Am I safe? Am I whole? Is my family okay? Like just that the basic human thing of like, am I okay? All the factors that impinge on that sense of safety really, really affect that thing. So when Fox News or its equivalents shows people images of caravans on the border ferrying undocumented immigrants across the southern border, that 60% of people in the middle can really be toggled into a very fear-based right-wing narrative on the border. Not, they mean, all of them are not going to move, but, but a significant fraction of them will suddenly adopt that frame. However, if you remember this issue where the Trump administration was separating children from parents on the border, that had the opposite effect. Suddenly, a bunch of people in that 60% group who do not support open borders in general, who, who are not immigration doves in general, but when that happened, a whole bunch of those people were like, this is not who we are. Suddenly, something had happened where those people were open to a, a set of arguments around immigration that were really different from before. So the persuaders I write about in this book with that fundamental view of people as contradicted, as Beyonce says, then set out to think about how do I encircle voters with so much chatter about how what we want to do, our side of things is normal, that they essentially think that's the way the world is. It's not about persuading that group in the middle by diluting things, by moderating things, by compromising things away so that you're offering them, you know, a halfway measure on everything. It's actually thinking about them as people who are almost like buying pants. Like when you buy pants, you don't do an analysis of like, what is the weather? Like, what is the thickness of the fabric that would be appropriate for this weather? Like for this much money, how, this many days of use. That's not how anyone buys pants. You buy pants by sort of intuitively thinking to yourself, like, what are we doing these days on pants? Like, what are people doing? Are we doing, like, I, I know Gen Z is not doing skinny jeans anymore. Is it only Gen Z that's not doing it? Are we all supposed to not do skinny anymore? Are we cuffing? Are we not cuffing? Right? That's how people buy pants. Like a visceral sense of like, what are we all doing? Like, what's everybody else doing? And I think what a lot of the persuaders I'm writing about this book basically argue is that for that 60% in the middle, they are choosing where they land on politics in ways that are much more similar to pant selection than we may realize. This holiday season, the easiest way to get all of your gifting done while supporting Best of Left is to just remember one URL, bestofleft.com slash holiday. From there, we link to our two favorite ways to buy books, both physical and audio, as well as our merch store, where you can get our designs, of course, along with the great works from thousands of other artists at the same time, and we get a commission on everything you buy. Not to mention, of course, we also have Best of Left gift memberships for the real 
intellectuals on your list. For books, both Bookshop and Libro are the best way to go because their whole business model is set up to help support local brick-and-mortar bookshops, not attempt to run them out of business. And both offer great gifting options. For instance, Libro offers audiobook credit bundles, which is great for gifts. And here's why. When you buy audiobook credit bundles, they are at a discounted price. And when your recipient redeems them, they don't have to worry about the price at all. Nearly all of Libro's books are available for the cost of one credit, regardless of what their normal dollar value is. So you get to give more for less, and your giftee doesn't have to think about money at all and can simply pick which books they want and pay one credit per title. And for a merch store, obviously, Best of Left Gear is great, but it may not be right for everyone on your list. Seriously, feel free to explore the entirety of the store because it is full of amazing designs that you can put on tees and other items. Honestly, one of my favorite parts of the holidays is watching the commission emails roll in, not because I'm getting rich, I'm not really, but because I get to see what people bought without having any idea who bought them. Of course, your, your privacy is secured, but I get to see what people bought, and I have seen some amazing designs get purchased in previous years, so you're definitely going to want to check that out. And finally, Best of Left gift memberships I think are probably fairly self-explanatory. It's a great way to directly support the show and help spread the joy of Best of Left to those on your list. So again, that one URL is bestofleft.com slash holiday. There's also a link in the show notes and a big banner on our homepage so you can't miss it. bestofleft.com slash holiday. Moral reframing involves articulating a political position that you're advocating for in terms of not your own values necessarily, but the moral values of uh, the audience or the person that you're communicating with. And so this often means making really different arguments than the ones we hear most often, uh, and maybe really different arguments than the ones that resonate the most with you. So for example, if you're a liberal, your first instinct in advocating for positions like immigration reform or same-sex marriage might be to make those you know, appeals in terms of values like equality and fairness and social justice. Uh, however, we find in our research that if you're communicating with a conservative, you would likely be more persuasive if you could somehow articulate your issue position in terms of values that resonate more with conservatives like religious values or patriotism or uh, respect for tradition and so on. Uh, those kinds of arguments uh, tend to be more persuasive. And they also, you'll, you'll notice as you make them like, oh, I haven't heard that argument because the people that hold these positions don't have those values usually. So obviously polarization and social change, these are uh, incredibly topical issues right now. What made you want to start studying them in the first place? Because I assume you started before these were the hot button issues that they are. I'm a pretty pretty pragmatic political person who's very concerned with achieving what I, what I think of as, as political progress in my lifetime. And what if you have that orientation that you would like to see some sort of progress as you define it, then you have to be concerned about polarization because you can't pass legis significant legislation around you know, inequality, immigration, climate change, whatever it is, without going through the problem of polarization. And so that, I think, is why Polarization as a political barrier is something that 
pretty much everybody of any political stripe has has in common now that they got to find a way around this problem if they're going to achieve their political goals. There are two things that I think are so interesting about your research here on this specific issue. I think the first one is that the idea that so often when we're trying to convince people who disagree with us, we go about it by saying the things that convinced us, even though we already believe something different than the person we're trying to convince. Yeah. And I think the the idea of reiterating your own reason for holding a political position, it, it's not crazy for very new political issues, like, I don't know, regulations on self-driving cars or something where everybody hasn't heard all the arguments yet. We're still figuring the whole thing out. Um, but for something like abortion or economic inequality or um, gun control, uh, people have heard the arguments that you have, have likely heard the arguments that you were persuaded by or not persuaded by for that matter. And if you're going to expand the base of support for your position, you're going to probably benefit from conceiving of some new arguments that are uniquely persuasive among the people that haven't already joined your side. Yeah. that And that's the second thing that I think is so fascinating about this is that the way that you put it is it's almost like we so often, instead of trying to convince people to support the issue, uh, often we're trying to convince people to change who they are and what they care about. The fact that you have such hard numbers in your research of like you can actually get people to by talking about what they care about, you can get them to change what they support on this substantive issue. A lot of your research takes the morals of liberals and the morals of conservatives. I don't think about morals as kind of lining up with like a political party, but you found that people who identify as conservative and people who identify as liberal tend to have different moral values that really speak to them the most strongly. Moral reframing is taking those morals that speak more strongly to the opposing group and using them to make your issue. Can you give us an example of a conservative argument made to appeal to liberals and a liberal argument made to appeal to conservatives? So, for example, one thing we tested was whether uh, conservatives could advocate more effectively for their positions if they articulated those positions in, in liberal value terms. And so one example was we looked at whether arguments for uh, high levels of military spending, a classically conservative political position, would resonate more with liberals if they were articulated in terms of the values of equality of opportunity and social justice and fairness. And so we tested a, a new argument for high levels of military spending that really emphasized the role of the military as an institution in the U.S. that can provide an opportunity for upward mobility for the poor and minorities, a place where they can achieve on a more level playing field than outside of the institution, uh, and you know, emphasize you know, some significant points where in, in American history where the military was a vehicle of equal opportunity, such as, uh, you know, the racial integration of the military that happened before a lot of other American institutions. And we found that when liberals read that argument, they tended to support high levels of military spending more because they read the military as, as resonating with their values more uh, than before they read the argument. And then the opposing side, right? So someone who comes at it like me with a, a liberal with liberal politics, how can I put some of the arguments of things that I care about in terms that will be compelling to a conservative? Yeah. So one example that we studied along those lines was uh, same-sex marriage. And we were interested in whether uh, a more persuasive argument for same-sex marriage could be made for uh, more persuasive among conservatives if same-sex marriage was uh, framed as consistent with conservative values. And specifically, we, we 
sought to connect same-sex marriage to the value of group loyalty and in particular patriotism. And so we presented conservatives with a, a new sort of same-sex marriage argument in, that said things like uh, gay Americans are proud patriotic Americans who work hard and contribute to the economy and in our society. And they, they want to buy homes and raise kids in this society, same as everyone else does. Uh, and, you know, they deserve the same rights as all other Americans. Um, and we found that that sort of an argument was more persuasive to conservatives than an argument in terms of uh, equality and fairness and social justice. This seems like you've kind of identified a way where it seems like, how could we ever agree on these things? And potentially there's actually much more overlap in terms of what we would care about and, and agree on. And here, here would be my, my case for considering moral reframing in everyday life. I, I'll make two points on this. One would be that uh, the United States is like an unbelievably demographically and culturally and politically diverse place. You know, as, as a country, we have, you know, substantial ethnic diversity. We have huge levels of socioeconomic class differences. We have regional differences that matter a lot. We have, we're, you know, riven with polarization. There's you know, political polarization. So there's these huge differences we're trying to communicate across in the U.S., more so than most contexts. And if we're going to say that we need to agree on this thing for the exact same reasons. We are definitely going to limit where, what, what level of consensus you can build to, how big of a majority you can have. I think that if you really want to succeed politically, there's going to have to be some comfort with agreeing with someone for somewhat different reasons, you know, uh, which, I mean, great problem to have given our levels of polarization. I would love for my political positions to be supported by 60, 70% of the American population and be really politically viable, uh, even if half those folks have a different reason than the other half of the folks for holding the position. So that would be my sort of pragmatic case for moral reframing. And then my principal case, well, you know, while I generally think moral reframing is as virtuous as the end that you put it to, I do think that there is something respectful about taking the time to try to connect the thing that you're trying to convince somebody of to the things they care most deeply about. I, I do think there is something respectful about saying, okay, you're coming to this conversation with these commitments. I'm going to dedicate some mental energy to how the thing I'm telling you, you ought to, you ought to consider believing in uh, connects to the things you care most deeply about. Another theme and, and very related idea in the book touches on how the right is at times doing a better job of persuading than than the left. And this feels, as, as you were saying, very relevant in America, but also elsewhere uh, as we see the ascendance of the right, especially in Europe recently. So what is it that you think the right broadly is doing better than the left when it comes to growing their movements? You know, I, I think when I studied these uh, organizers and activists and others, and I, and I would say in particular, this is a book about organizers, right? There's a kind of, these are people outside the national limelight who are doing deep work in communities to try to build a bigger coalition for multiracial democracy. And I studied what they do that maybe the rest of us are not doing such a great job of. To run down a quick list, in this day and age, being able to command attention is incredibly hard 
in a fragmented media age and incredibly important, right? It doesn't matter how great your policy ideas are if you don't have a politics of attention and a theory of attention. This is an area where the right runs laps around the left in the United States, and I would argue not only in the United States. Uh, second, a lot of these organizers talk about meaning making, which is not just asking for voters for votes every four years or not just asking them to donate money, but really being with voters through a 24-7, 365 process of making sense of the world. Jobs go away to China. Are you explaining to them why that's happening and and, and talking them through it? Men are being asked to kind of abandon old toxic ways of being a man and behave in these new ways. Are you walking with men and explaining to them why this is happening? White people are, you know, being asked to grapple with race and think about race and account for whiteness in a way that their parents and grandparents never were. Are you helping them process that? Or are you just leaving meaning-making to the far right? Meeting voters where they are is another thing I learned from these organizers. Again, the right is often just great at like, come as you are into our movement. And the political left sometimes has barriers to entry. If you don't know the right terms, if you don't understand this, if you don't understand that, you don't speak in the right way, you may feel unwelcome. Um, I would say picking fights is another part of this playbook. Mm. It, you know, the right is very good at scapegoating and it does it with deception often. And the left is sometimes bad at picking generative fights, picking fights against, you know, billionaires who divide uh, in order to conquer, picking fights against insurance company executives who deny three-year-olds the health care they need. Uh, those are righteous fights worth picking that help educate and move people. Uh, and I would also say telling a story, the better story, right? The right understands narrative, it understands emotion, it understands the importance of patriotic appeal. And the political left has often, you know, uh, kind of left that terrain to the right. Another thing you write about is that it's just more fun, like in, in a way, right? There's more joy in some of these messages. Yeah, I don't mean to, I think of myself as a relatively serious person who uh, thinks about politics in a, you know, relatively serious way and yeah. studied studied the history of political thought in college and grad school. But I think at the end of the day, my basic political advice to anybody is that you should be throwing a more fun party than the other people. I think at the end of the day, a lot of voters are like standing outside two house parties, deciding which one has better music, better drinks, more fun people, you know, and, and I think we need a political left that isn't just describing problems, isn't just narrating problems, isn't just telling people that the world is going to end because of climate and all these things, but that is just thrilling, fun, edifying, easygoing, chill, like e easy <laughs> I, to join. I heard you on a recent podcast, I think it was Climate One, and you talked about that in the context of climate, like instead of always talking about how we're kind of doomed that we could talk about all the cool stuff that that could change our lives because of this transition, right? I think climate is like the most interesting application of exactly this, where think about what stories you associate with like all the discourse about climate, like since you've been conscious. And I would say for most of us, that discourse has been like things that are going to be taken away from you or things you can't do or things that are bad that you're doing or the whole vibe of climate change in general is this terrible thing's happening and you're going to have to like sacrifice and have like an austere existence in order to save the planet. Okay, well, that's certainly one way of framing it. And I think, you know, I've spoken to a lot of young uh, climate change, uh, young of color climate change activists who say this was also a kind of messaging that appealed to affluent 
white liberals who are leading the movement in the 60s and 70s and 80s who had comfortable lives and, and, and therefore kind of almost like fetishized sacrifice. For a lot of communities, a climate message centered on things we're going to take away from you or the fact that we're all going to have to sacrifice is just like not a very winning message. Mm-hmm. And it's not the only true thing to say about climate, right? Climate, like as Bill McKibben wrote in a great piece the other day, like there's going to be blimps. Like we're going to have blimps again because we're going to have to do blimps to do cargo and other forms of transport. How come we're not telling people about blimps? Like the blimps are going to be fun. Like why are we yeah, not drawing the blimps? Gonna, I really, I'm, I would love to ride in a blimp. Right? So you're like, you're going to yeah. be able to. How come we haven't talked about the fact that in the United States, where there is so much ingrained physical infrastructure built along racist lines, that climate change is the first and perhaps only real opportunity we're ever going to have politically to do racial repair and like get public transit to Detroit, to an overwhelmingly black city in Detroit, in a way that without something like climate, there would never be political will to get transit in a place like Detroit. Why aren't we telling people that this is a incredible opportunity to pull together and build awesome things and have a healthier relationship to each other, to the planet, to our own history, right? It is a choice to, to frame climate as a Debbie Downer. And I think some of the most interesting young climate activists are really in the midst of a rethinking about how to frame this as a thrill. One of the organizers that you speak to in the book, uh, Alicia Garza, mm-hmm. a longtime civil rights activist, really impressive person, labor activist. She was one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter. Uh, she's really critical of something she describes as purism, that can come with social justice work that she finds counterproductive. And and you talk to actually a bunch of organizers who say similar things. And you talk to me about what Garza is talking about there. I started this uh, the, the book with three activists who are, including Alicia, who are deeply steeped in their movements and, and incredibly credible in, in progressive and radical spaces, kind of saying, look, our spaces are devoted to an agenda that is arguably the most kind of inclusive, broadly recognizing of humanity in the history of movements. But what Alicia and others warn is that these movements for radical inclusion can, at a tactical level, feel quite exclusionary to people, right? Now, it doesn't mean it's always their fault. Some of this is ginned up and manufactured by the far right. Some of it is self-inflicted wounds. But there is a problem of a political left that is so militant about fighting for these things, which it should be, that that militancy spills over into unkindness towards people who don't entirely get it, but might want to be in your movement. And what Alicia says to me in the book is, look, when when non-radical people are joining your radical movement, that's actually when you know you're winning. You should not turn your nose up at your own cause or at other people when they come on board with you. There are a lot of examples in your book that you go through, like a sexual assault survivor working to change the thinking of rapists, bridging those gaps, doing that outreach. It often requires the very people who are victims of the problem to be the ones extending that that olive branch. Obviously, maybe a lot of people aren't going to want to subject themselves to that. Yeah, I, I think most people probably should not. Uh, I'm not sure that I personally 
want to do some of the work that I describe in the book. As Loretta Ross, one of those other great activists, says to me, do the work that works for you, right? So mm-hmm. I, I want to really underscore this point because I'm glad you've raised it. I think, you know, one of the terms that has come into to use now to describe what you just did is emotional labor, right? You know, the idea that, that people of color would have to talk white people through racism or that women would have to talk men through their kind of discomfort living in an egalitarian world or so on and so forth. And I think there's no right to ask that of anyone. The people I'm writing about in the book all say very clearly, no one has to do this work. Most people will not want to do this work, and they are right to stay away. However, some minority of us, who are the people I'm writing about in the book, want to do this work. And I would further go out on a limb as to say, I think some of us are going to need to do what we shouldn't have to do if our countries are to be whole. And let me let me underscore why. I think we don't fully appreciate sometimes that a lot of the incredible social progress that has been made in Canada, in the United States, in other places in recent decades, the progress of women, the demographic changes and progress and civil rights progress of black people and people of color, indigenous people, um, the psychological displacements of globalization, of manufacturing moving to China, of changes in technology, the economy, the structure of how opportunity and how people get ahead, rising inequality. If you add up all these things we have lived through, they are big structural shifts, but they're also huge psychological shifts, right? Well, if you think about you know, the ways in which white people conceive of themselves. Which white person living today, how many of your parents and grandparents 30 or 60 years ago were thinking about their whiteness? Uh, Very few, Mm -hmm. I can assure you, right? That's a big change. Like, it's going to take work to walk people through the psychological transitions of the age, the displacements of the age. And basically, I would argue, the right understands deeply what I just said. The right understands that the first fact of politics right now is that it's an age of fear, anxiety, and people basically, many people feeling like, I don't know who I am in the new world that's coming. That could be because of technology, that could be because of trade, that could be because of race, it could be because of all of the above. And that feeling of I don't know who I am in the world that's coming is the most dangerous feeling in politics. The right gets it. And I basically want the left, I want the pro-democracy side of things in the United States and elsewhere to match and out-compete the right at understanding that people are living these fears and anxieties and almost building a politics on top of that basic emotional and psychological understanding of people. The traditional view of polarization a few decades ago was that it meant that Democrats and Republicans severely disagreed with each other about the role of government and what policies the government should enact. And that was kind of the prevailing view for a long time. But then in the 90s and early 2000s, it became pretty clear that Americans aren't actually very polarized in their policy preferences. But instead, they, they seem to really dislike one another. So that was a puzzle that I was really interested in exploring. You know, how is it that people can generally hold, um, you know, common policy preferences, but on a political level still hate one another? 
So my research basically uses, uses theories from social psychology and intergroup conflict, which, you know, in psychology, there's plenty of reasons that groups hate each other without disagreeing about, you know, taxes. And so, <laughs> so there's all kinds of theories that can be used from psychology. And that, so I brought those into the study of kind of why Democrats and Republicans would have this, this sense of animosity. And, and what I, what I ultimately found is that First of all, partisanship is, has become a very strong identity of its own. And, and people tend to defend the status of the groups with which they identify. So, you know, people prefer to beat the other group to have, to be victorious over the other group rather than have like the greater good of everybody. And then the second thing that happened is that a bunch of other social identities moved into alignment with partisanship. So over the last few decades, really, and the process started in the 1960s as a response to civil rights legislation, which alienated white Southern Democrats who gradually moved out of the Democratic Party over a generation. You know, then by now they're all Republicans. And uh, so we have Basically, at this point, you know, a Republican Party that's largely white and, and Christian and uh, rural and a Democratic Party that's more urban, educated, racially diverse, religiously diverse. And so the sort of separation of those identities from each other along partisan lines really increased the potency of those partisan identities so that every time there's an election. So, right, elections are regularly scheduled status competitions. Right. And before we had all these identities linked to our party it was just a status competition between the parties. And so it didn't matter that much. But once the status competition is linked to all these other central identities like race and religion, those elections become really sort of dire. And the outcome feels much more important on an individual kind of psychological level for people. And so they become much more defensive of their party and they become much more invested in the outcome of the election. And they also, you know, sort of think of the other party as, you know, the, the other party's rule as illegitimate and un-American because it's nothing like them. So that's sort of how we got to this point. So, so we're really, you know, as you're describing it, it's a my team versus your team. It's not, it's no longer, I'm going to go to the election booth. I'm going to go to the poll and I'm going to pull a lever because, you know, I want my taxes lowered or because I want more government programs or because I want a boost in funding and education. People are now going because it's really my team versus your team. And my team is people who are just like me and your team is the other. Is that really where we are? Yeah, to a large extent. I mean, the, the, on average, even, even now, on average, the, you know, if you look at in the American National Election Studies, which is a giant study of Americans that's done every four years, if you just look at the average positions on really salient issues, abortion, immigration, healthcare, gun control, and taxes, you actually see that even Republicans, on average, across all those positions are to the left of center. And Democrats are further to the left. But on average, on a policy-based level, America is a left-leaning country. But if you ask people whether they're liberal or conservative, the majority of people say they're conservative. So that means there's a whole bunch of people who say they're, say they're conservative, identify as conservative, and, and hold moderate to progressive policy attitudes. So wait, the majority of the people in America say they're conservative, but the Republican Party doesn't get as many votes in presidential elections as the Democratic Party. So how does that all square? Yeah, so it's, well, it's more that the, 
when people say America is like a, a conservative nation or a right-leaning nation, that's what they're talking about is the number of people who call themselves conservative. Uh, the problem with the term conservative is that it means different things to different people. So you can be a conservative fiscally in your own family. You can be conservative religiously. You can think of being conservative in a lot of the ways that are, that are not political. And, and so when we ask people that question, sometimes they answer it in a non-political way, but we don't understand, we don't have a way of knowing that, right? In the, in terms of the way we measure it. And so, so we end up with this mismatch between people who identify as conservative and people who are politically, actually politically conservative on policies. And so, you know, when, when politicians look at the electorate and see all these self-identified conservatives, they think like, okay, great. You know, we've got all these self-identified conservatives. That's what the country wants. Not understanding that it doesn't actually translate perfectly into policy preferences. And even if popular policies are enacted, it's still really hard to get people who are strongly identified with their party to vote for the other party, right? They, they would have to be either extraordinarily pleased with what's happening in their own life based on what the government, and give credit to the government for doing it, or they would have to be extraordinarily displeased. And so, like, for instance, after the, you know, the Great Recession in George W. Bush's second term. So there is some reaction to outcomes, to governmental outcomes, but it's, it really requires gigantic shifts. And even now, you know, it's unclear, you know, approval of Trump, we had a, you know, we had a global pandemic and, a, and an economic crisis at the same time, and his approval ratings didn't really change. So it seems like as we go forward, it becomes stickier and stickier and stickier, right? Like who, who people vote for is just a predetermined choice, kind of regardless of what's going on. And there's, there's some people, you know, that are kind of not paying as much attention that, that are slightly more persuadable. But the people who identify as partisans really think that the people in the other party are, and, you know, we've measured this, are downright evil. Like we've said those words and people agree with that statement. Well, one of the things I've noticed is that maybe for the first time in this last couple election cycles, Americans truly identify with one party as it's like it's become their identity. It's no longer, you know, part of their life. It's their identity itself. And I've noticed that, you know, even adult friend groups, people who used to mix who are both Republicans and Democrats, they don't really mix anymore after the Trump years. And, you know, and one group will say, well, my identity is aligned with Trump. And the other group will say, I'm a Democrat. And then they they really can't mix and mingle at cocktail parties anymore. They can't, you know, have dinner together. And, you know, have you seen evidence of this? Because, you know, in my world, there's lots of people who really don't have a lot to say to each other anymore here in Washington, you know, after the Trump years. So first of all, what you're observing is a real thing that's been happening. And those, those sort of, you know, ways of coming across people who are not in your party via other group identities, right? So, you know, it, there used to be a time when like Democrats and Republicans went to the same church, for instance, right? Or, you know, their kids went to the same school because they lived in the same neighborhood. And increasingly, and those are called, we call them cross-cutting identities. It just gives people a chance to see people in the other party from a different perspective. That's very humanizing. It allows you to be 
you know, kind of generous with your interpretations of their behaviors and their, and their thoughts. And it's exactly those types of cross-cutting identities that have been disappearing from, from American society. And so that's part, you know, sort of this long trend that is kind of culminated with the Trump administration. But really, I think part of it also happened during the Obama administration, where not because of anything Obama did, but just simply by the fact that he was a black president, what his presidency did was really clarify for people who had not been paying attention before what a Democrat looks like. And along with partisan news, helped to show people this is us and that's them, right? These are our people. Those are their people. And that's really the Tea Party was very much a response to that. And then having established that sort of new kind of alignment, what the Trump presidency did was really cement the, you know, the, the, especially the racial divide between, between the parties. And, and what you're talking about in terms of, you know, having uncomfortable, you know, cocktail parties or Thanksgiving dinners. You know, I think one, one thing to make clear is, first of all, it's largely a white person thing, right? It's the divide that's happened has been between white Democrats and white Republicans because, you know, the African American community is extraordinarily democratic. Um, Hispanics are less so, but still highly democratic. And so, you know, this is this kind of really deep rift. And the main cause of it is white Democrats who believe that systemic racism is real and is a problem that we need to address and white Republicans who don't believe that that's the case. And so there's the the really central rift between white Democrats and white Republicans is about whether or not this country has gone far enough in moving towards a, you know, multi-ethnic egalitarian democracy or whether we should go backwards. And, and so, and that's a really difficult conversation to have because it really is like pulling on the same rope, right? There, it's very hard to find a compromise place in should we go backwards or should we go forwards? There's, there's sort of nowhere to compromise on that. And so that type of conversation is really hard to have. It's very loaded, right? Just the word racist is almost, you know, forbidden in, in polite conversation. And, you know, for good reason, not talking about racism protects racism, but that's, you know, increasingly it becomes this really loaded conversation that is impossible to come to a compromise on or to find common ground on. And most people want to avoid even having that conversation at all. So that's, you know, that's underlying a lot of these really uncomfortable interactions that we're seeing is that, you know, the reason they're uncomfortable is because we're talking about really essential things about American democracy and equality. And those things, you know, no one's going to compromise on those. We've just heard clips today, starting with the NPR Politics podcast, comparing our current partisanship to the hyper-competitiveness of the two boys camp experiment. Ideas spoke with Anand Garudadas about the need for persuasion to ward off the forces of anti-democracy and fascism. How to be a better human discussed moral reframing of arguments. 
Front Burner also spoke with Anand Gurudas about how there are real reasons for anxiety over massive societal change, and if we give up on persuasion, we leave it up to the far right to help people make meaning of the change we're experiencing. And the truth of the matter looked at how the realignment of racism into partisanship solidified the political rift we're now living through. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from The Future of Everything, highlighting a new and innovative way of doing in-depth polling involving group discussions and expert input to help break down baked-in divisions. The deliberative polling, as I call it, or the work on deliberative democracy has two aims. It's to restore the deliberative process, the thinking process, with good information to the very formation of the will of the people. And secondly, we've discovered that this has dramatic effects on extreme partisan polarization. Indeed, all of our divisions. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And finally, I just wanted to add a thought or two about what actually inspired today's topic, because I, I wanted to help people understand the dynamics of hyperpartisanship in the wake of our recent election. You may have noticed that there was an election in the U.S. a few weeks ago, and uh, and this episode is getting published actually as the final runoff election to decide the last remaining Senate seat, which is happening in Georgia. That's all happening at the same time as, as the show is going out. And there's been a lot of conversation over the last few weeks across the political spectrum about the quality, let's say, of candidates that Republicans put up this year as a way of explaining why they didn't do better in the midterms than historical trends indicated they should have. The mainstream press and even some Republicans willing to stand up against Trumpism have been saying that many of the Trump-backed candidates dragged the whole party down because they were terrible which is true. And on the left, commentators have been echoing that same sentiment, but with an added degree of disdain for individual Republican voters at the same time. And this has been particularly true with the Georgia election in which the Democrat Raphael Warnock is running against the Trump-backed ex-football player Herschel Walker, who Dave Chappelle referred to on Saturday Night Live as observably stupid which was the funniest thing that he said during his monologue. And it's true. He is profoundly and obviously unfit to run for the Senate, and anything anyone wants to say about him or his qualifications or his intelligence is perfectly fair game. However, where commentators often go next is to the Republican voters who voted for candidates like Dr. Oz or Carrie Lake or Herschel Walker and ask a somewhat rhetorical, but definitely demeaning question that's, you know, something along the lines of how can these people possibly cast their votes for such an unqualified candidate? And this question frustrates me because the left is supposed to be the side that understands systemic and structural forces. How can a left-wing commentator claim to understand the power dynamics of structural racism and patriarchy that work beyond individual feelings and biases, but then turn to the election process and be 
seemingly totally flummoxed by how voters could possibly vote for candidates based on systemic rather than personal reasons, or not even understand that that's the dynamics at question. Meaning, a vote for someone like Herschel Walker isn't necessarily a personal endorsement of him, his character, and his qualifications. It might be all that, but it's just as likely to be a vote for republicanism, regardless of the candidate, and nothing more. And if you're still incredulous about that reasoning, all you have to do is think about it in reverse, and ask yourself, how bad would a Democratic candidate have to be for you to not prefer them over a Republican? So there's a Democrat running for the Senate. They may very well be the tie-breaking vote in any number of issues. They support abortion rights, universal health care, taxing the rich, fighting climate change, you know, the whole slate. But they also publicly proclaim that they suck their thumb, sleep in a plastic race car bed with plastic sheets, and only eat Pop-Tarts because they believe that all other food has microchips in it uh, to spy on people. Somehow they got through the primary election, and now voters are stuck with them, and what are you going to do? Are you going to vote for the Republican who opposes everything you believe in, or are you going to vote for the Democrat who sleeps in a plastic race car bed and believes in conspiracy theories, but will vote the way you want them to vote on all the important issues? The point is that in an age of hyperpartisanship, most votes are decided based on structural logic, not individual preference. In previous era, when it mattered a little bit less which party was in power because they were so much more ideologically similar, there was a greater chance that voters would actually switch their votes between the parties based on how they felt about individual candidates. Now that the parties are extremely different from one another, we don't have that same latitude as voters to oppose an individual candidate who actually supports our policy preferences but is otherwise objectionable because the other side is always going to be worse. And this is the same no matter which side you're coming from. As a sort of side note to this, which also kind of proves the rule, is uh, voting when the office is not part of a larger body. So a House member is a part of the House of Representatives, a senator is part of the Senate, a state legislator is part of the state legislature. And so all of those races aren't just individual, but are part of trying to build a majority in the larger political body they're part of. But there are some offices, like governorships, which are much more singular. And so those races end up being a bit different. That's how states that reliably vote for Democratic presidents and senators like New York and Massachusetts and Maryland often actually end up with Republican governors. Because governorships aren't part of a larger political body, where getting a majority of seats can make a huge difference in policymaking, voters are more free to vote based on the individual candidates in the race and less on party affiliation. So that's sort of the exception, but it also kind of proves the rule for the other races. So back to the left-wing commentator being shocked and appalled at the Republican voters disgracing themselves by supporting candidates so manifestly unfit for office, as many of the ones who ran this year were. You're not helping. What you're doing is actually somewhat dehumanizing, and in my view, you are not highlighting anything about Republican voters, though you think you are, you're only highlighting your own ignorance of the systemic forces at play, 
which, as I said, is particularly embarrassing for someone on the left. Now, of course, those systemic forces basically amount to the formation of a political cult and should be criticized and fought with as much strength as we can muster. But it's not the individual Republican voters who are the problem because they're only doing what is rational within their own context because they believe just as strongly in the rightness of their ideas as we do in ours. And just to be clear, this isn't only something left-wing commentators have been saying. The right has been making the exact same argument in reverse. Uh, One of the main talking points, particularly in Pennsylvania, after the Democratic candidate for Senate, John Fetterman, had a stroke. They started immediately saying that he was basically brain-dead and that it would be ridiculous to vote for him. To which I thought, setting aside the noxious and wrong idea that suffering a stroke actually makes a person mentally incapacitated, I thought... I would absolutely vote for a Democrat who was mentally incapacitated, in a coma even, over a Republican if I had to. No question about it. There is nothing irrational about that from my position because I exist in a society that is entrenched in a hyper-partisan political system. And so, with very few exceptions, votes are made based on systemic forces like party affiliation far more or entirely as opposed to individual candidates and individual merits. That's just how the system works, and everyone should understand that. So go ahead and criticize the candidates and the systemic forces that create the kind of election dynamics where people end up voting for manifestly unqualified candidates. Yes, absolutely, that's what we're doing here. But give the individuals a break. They're all trapped in the same system that we are. As always, keep the comments coming in, and remember that our number now works for practically all of your commenting needs. You can leave us a voicemail, as always, or you can send us a text message through standard SMS. You can find us on WhatsApp or the Signal Messaging app, all with the same number, 202-999-3991, or keep it old school by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of Left Discord community to talk about the show or the news or other shows or anything you like. Links to join are in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast coming to you twice weekly. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.